Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, the final six verses here. We are now entering what will be the final week of Jesus' life before he gets to Jerusalem, before he's crucified. It's going to take about five chapters for those final three or four days uh, to unfold in Scripture. And during that time, some of the most famous teachings that Jesus gives are found in the passages that follow chapter 13. But chapter 13 ends with something that I think we all need to be aware of. And it's become so visible during this pandemic. The devil wants to scare you into abandoning your faith. Abandoning the mission. If he can get you to quit, he does not have to defeat you physically. He doesn't have to beat you up. He doesn't have to do anything else if he can simply get you to turn away. From the faith that he's won. We see that Satan is not beyond attempting to get Jesus to succumb to that same scare tactic. And so the title of this morning's message, Scare Tactics, would you pray with me? We'll take verses 31 to 35. Father, we come and we pray and we ask and we seek and we knock on heaven's door for you to speak to us as your church. Lord, we confess to you the uncertainties of our mind, the pandemic, Lord, the economic situation, the presidential election, Lord, all these things that are weighing heavy on us, Lord, the losses of jobs, and Lord, the things that are just so burdensome to us as a people. But Lord, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. And we pray that that soundness would come to us as we study your word. And that, Lord, we be bold with our faith, unafraid and unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. And so, God, we announce to you that we believe and we want you to speak to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 31, and on that very day, so it's referring to what is previously have been said in this chapter, some Pharisees came saying to him that him is Jesus. Now again, who are the Pharisees? They're religious legalists. They're people who rely on the law. Everything is about rules. Everything is about regulations. God gave them the law and they've taken the law and expanded it as basically a tool with which to exercise authority and power over others. It could still glorify the Lord, but the fact of the matter is, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, they're actually going to go so far as to be involved in the murder of Jesus. That's where their hearts are going. And so there's a heart problem. It's not a religion problem. It's not a law problem. It's not a doing problem. It's a heart problem. And the Pharisees came saying to him, 
Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, when your enemies come and give you some type of information, you can almost always be assured that there's something behind it. The devil works this way today, my beloved brothers and sisters. The enemy will send people to you. In the midst of you doing exactly what God wants you to do, you're in that place where the Lord is at work in your life and things are changing. Your life is being transformed. Your mind is being renewed. And the devil will send someone to you advising you to do something that will take you out of God's will. Very often it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, could even be a spouse, maybe a mom, maybe a dad, might occasionally even be somebody that professes to have the Lord's best interest in mind. But when someone comes to you and speaks something that's contrary to God's will for your life, it's not because they're trying to help you. When someone encourages you to sin, when someone encourages you to go against what God has already said to you, Jesus knows where he's going, amen? He has no compunction about the fact that he's going to Jerusalem to give his life. And so this news is not news so Jesus can be spared. This is news so that Jesus won't go and become the sacrifice for our sin. Satan wants to scare you. He wants to get you thinking, well, I, I could just get out of this. This whole living for Jesus thing has gotten awfully difficult. It's gotten a little difficult to live for Jesus in our day and time, hasn't it? You, you see... I want you to be prepared, church. The life of a believer at times is glorious, it's wonderful, it's joy-filled. And at times, it's an outright war. At times, it's painful. At times, it's hurtful. And you have to be prepared for both sides. Satan wants to scare you. Notice how Jesus responds. And he said to them, go tell that fox, that's not Jesus being kind, that's Jesus limiting his words, go tell that cunning, crafty one, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. He's saying, look, this isn't going to scare me off. I'm going to Jerusalem. This isn't going to dissuade me one iota from doing, I, I understand fully that Herod wants to kill me. I know that that's what he wants to do. But I don't care. This is what I came to do. The Father and I have been in constant contact and I'm going to Jerusalem to give my life a ransom for many. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following. So for three days, he's going to be traveling. That's your next five chapters. He's going to be winding his way through Perea. 
eventually to Jericho and then up the Jericho road to Jerusalem. So I, I, I'm on a journey. Isaiah put it this way, his face was set as flint on Jerusalem. He wouldn't be moved, sharpened, focused. And what is said next is Jesus being, you know, we don't think of this sometimes, but Jesus is being a tad sarcastic. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He's basically saying, look, you've killed every prophet that's been sent to you. And I will be no different. You guys are the ones that have actually bumped off the prophets. He's throwing it back in their face. And then Jesus speaking over the Jewish people, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You see, there's, there's the deal. It wasn't that God hadn't been faithful to send them prophets. God had been tremendously faithful. They didn't want to hear the message. They, they wanted God to say what they wanted to hear. And I think there's an awful lot of Christendom, especially here in America, that that's what they're looking for right now. Just tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me that I need to wear a mask or socially distance. Just tell me that uh, I get to do whatever I want to do. Don't tell me that I might have to suffer for the kingdom. Did you know that we have been called to the fellowship of suffering? As a body of Christ, that's part of our life while we're here on earth. You're going to suffer for the king's sake. Now, I can't tell you how that's going to work out in your specific situation in your life individually, but I can tell you this. Connie and I have done a fair amount of suffering for the Lord. Don't think you'll be immune. And don't think every day is going to be as you would like it to be. You're going to be tested. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. You see, the natural indication that a chick belongs to a specific hen is that when the mother hen clucks, the chicks come running. It's in the DNA. And it should be in the DNA of every person who loves God that when God calls, we come running. But the Jewish people, that was not the case. They were hearing foreign voices. The voice of self. The voice of sin. And so they began to wander away. And Jesus rightly declaring, it wasn't that they couldn't, it's they wouldn't. They were unwilling to come. God wanted to gather them. God wanted to save them. God wanted to spare them. God wanted to speak to them, but they were unwilling to come. See, your house has left you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, that you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus is saying, this is going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. So, oh, oh, you're going to say Hosanna in a week or so, but you're not going to mean it. But one day you will mean it. And we'll get there at the end of our time this morning. What a strange, what a weird, what a bizarre warning this is. But in all seriousness, as you look at it, you can kind of see how the enemy would use something like this. Because it wasn't just Jesus that was listening, it was the disciples. And so very often, I find the the case is this in ministry. It's like the Lord's spoken. And sometimes the voices that get most affected are the people who should know best. Sometimes it's the staff. Sometimes it's the people closest to us that maybe they're listening not quite to the voice of the Lord. They're listening to some other voice. It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe we should just give up. Maybe we should throw in the towel. Maybe we should just quit. After all, you know, we're still meeting outside. We're having to wear a mask. We better quit. The Lord's testing our faith. We're being asked to check and see if the faith that we profess in Christ is real. Will you do what God asks you to do, no matter what it costs? No matter how hard it is. No matter where it takes you. No matter what the Lord asks of you, will you give it? This next little section that we're going to be in, the question arises, what really is a true disciple? You see, the Herod family was a very strange group. You know, sometimes we get confused, but there are actually three Herods that are in the life of Christ. The first one is the father of the rest, Herod the Great. He's this incredible ruler. He's, he's half Igemean and half Jew. And so he kind of sort of plays himself off as a friend to the Jewish people, but not really. Uh, he, he reigns and rules for about 40 years. He embarks on these incredible construction projects that kind of ingratiates him a little bit to the Jewish people, including refurbishing Solomon's temple, making it far grander, When you travel to Jerusalem today, when we see the Jewish people at the largest and most holy outdoor synagogue in the world, which is the Hakotel, which is the western wall, the Wailing Wall, those stones that are dressed on the edge, those 13 rows that are visible above the plaza, are the stones that were laid by Herod the Great. He expanded the Temple Mount, And he made the temple as grand as it ever was in antiquity. And so in one sense, he was kind of a good guy to the Jewish people. But he lost his mind towards the end of his reign. And ultimately, Matthew records in Matthew 2 that at the very end of his life, he's the one that hears from the Magi that there's going to be this guy born that's going to be a threat to Herod the Great. And so it is Herod the Great 
that sends the notice out to kill off all of the firstborn sons. But in the process of living out his life, he has nine additional sons. Two of those sons are prominent in the scripture. And you can see there in Matthew 2, the first one that comes into view is Archelaus. Archelaus is an evil ruler. He doesn't last long. He's deposed. The one that's most often spoken of when the word Herod, because it's really like a surname, it's like the Herods, if you want to look at it that way. A long line of them is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the ruler of one quarter of the empire of Judea. And so he is the ruler of Galilee. He sets up his capital in what is today modern-day Tiberias. He rules from there. He's the one that's responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. He is the one that wants to see John the Baptist do additional miracles, and it is he that's in view as Jesus begins his public ministry. And, and so there's this very long line of this single family being against the Lord. They saw Jesus as a threat. Can I tell you that a lot of the world sees Christianity as a threat? That there's something different about us. You see this in the political sphere. This was a highly politicized environment where people were picking sides. Are you for the Pharisees? Are you for Herod? Or are you for this kind of weird, strange guy from Galilee named Jesus of Nazareth? And the country was being torn apart by division. Kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Are, are you for the government? That would be the Herods. Are, are you for the ecumenical church? That would be God is in everything and God is in every church and no matter who you worship, it's all okay. There's that group. They've always been around. And then there's real believers. People who actually believe that the word of God is true, that there's one Savior and his name is Jesus. There has always been this tension. You see, we start to think that we're the first ones to ever experience that. But it has been the case since the beginning. The devil wants to scare you into making an allegiance, if you will, with the world. Wants you to pick political sides. Wants you to pick religious sides when Jesus is saying, would you just pick my side? Would you just be a Christ follower? And so here's what happens. The Herods get their way. But there's an incredibly negative legacy. When the church becomes a political action arm, there will always be a horrible legacy. Because Christ is actually king. He's supposed to be the ruling sovereign. 
And you cannot blend those two things well. Something is going to come apart. And that something normally is our attention to the details of life as a believer. And pretty soon we start being identified just like what happened during this time with Herod. With the ruling government authorities. Back in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etutria, and Tractanus, and Licentius, the tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas. You see, there was a ruling family. And they were powerful. And if you were in with them, you had all kinds of goodies tossed your way. All the good things in life came through the Herods. And so people began to say, well, you know, I kind of like what Jesus is doing, but I really like the goodies that I get from the Herods. As we move through the life of these men, it's why Jesus is calling him that fox in this passage, because they were always doing what was politically expedient. Their whole goal was to curry favor with those that were in their jurisdiction. In other words, it was like they were trying to buy their loyalty. Well, sure, we'll build the temple. That's what Herod the Great did. Sure, we'll let you build a synagogue. That was what all of the Herods did. They, they loved it when someone bought into their system. Sure. But oh, by the way, we're going to kill the messenger of Jesus, John the Baptist. We're going to imprison him in Machaerus. We're going to behead him because he dared call out the sin of the Herod family. You see, Herod was filled with these things. That was what was inside of him. But on the outside? If you want to have a better house, vote for Herod. You want to have a nicer water system, vote for Herod. Notice what happens here. In the life of Jesus, Pilate is actually going to ask the question, Is Jesus a Galilean? And we'll see this when we get to this part of the journey. You know why he asked that? Because Pilate was trying to do what was expedient for him as well. Oh, he's a Galilean. We'll send him to Herod Antipas then. Just happens to be in Jerusalem. The enemy tries to scare you that you need to make alliances and allegiances with the world. And Jesus is saying there's one allegiance you need, and that's me. You see, the Herods were as powerful and politically connected as you could possibly get. And I think that's a word for us. Because the enemy is trying to scare us into thinking that this being all in for Jesus 
but we might get left behind. If you're all in with Jesus, you won't be left behind, you'll be taken up. Amen? Remember that. That has to be kept in view. Because if you think that what this earth can give you is all there is, then you have the focus of earth and not of heaven. Heaven is eternal, earth is temporary. And so Jesus is trying to make that case in this passage. You're going to threaten me? You're, you, okay. You're, you're going to kill me? Well, guess what? I came to die. Who cares? Jesus wasn't threatened by it. It's what he came to do. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And so be careful when you get this mixed message. Those threats shouldn't work on you either. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 is very clear. Greater is he who's in you, amen, than the one who's in this world. We're on the winning side being for Christ. Every other side should be less important to you. Every other side should be one that you look at with very timid understanding. I don't know how things are going to go down in the presidential election. I don't know. I have some personal thoughts about it. But frankly, they're meaningless compared to what I know about the king. They're meaningless. I shared on Thursday night, the same God that flung the stars into space is still the king of the universe. Amen? So while all these other things may affect us temporarily, they will not affect us eternally. If you're a believer in Christ, the worst thing that this world can do is kill you. And that's what we call a winner. That means you're absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's what would happen. So, so when you think about it, think about it in that light. And what happens then is it decompresses the situation that's in your mind. You see, when I recognize the worst thing the world can do is kill me, that's what Jesus is saying. So what? You're going to kill me. I came to do that. When you think about it in the perspective of your own life, the worst thing can happen is you die physically. That's the worst thing that can happen. But that's the best thing that can happen to you as far as eternity is concerned. So it's like, it's kind of like a win-win situation, amen? No more sorrow, no more pain, no more having to go to the polls and mail in ballots and do all that stuff. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So Jesus is getting our focus off of the earth and back onto heaven. I think a church needs that message today. It's like this next couple, three weeks is going to be kind of kooky. It's going to be nutty. It's going to be bizarre. You're going to hear all kinds of crazy stuff. But after the election, Jesus Christ is still going to be Savior and Lord. Amen? So that perspective helps you get through the daily grind. That perspective helps you when you go to cast a vote. That perspective helps you know that no matter what happens, the king that is the king of heaven is still going to be the king of heaven. He is still going to reign on high. Amen? 
You see, the Herods had a woeful legacy. And Jesus basically says, this doesn't frighten me. I don't fear you. And so to respond to that, I want you to see what Jesus does. He gives them a warning. Jesus doesn't go, oh, I'm scared. Jesus goes, well, you're right, they're going to kill me, I'm running. No, Jesus turns around and warns them. So I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. He turns it around and he says, look, you guys, all you have is your, your petty positions in your religious hierarchy and your political connections. That's all you've got. My heavenly father sent me here to do this thing and I'm going to do it when I'm done. The enemy is no longer going to have power over sin and death to those who believe. So I really don't care what it is you're going to do to me. First he gives them a fatal denunciation of what they're doing. Nevertheless, I must walk during the day and tomorrow and the following day. Or look, you've killed every other prophet. I'm going to go be killed like the prophets of old. It's like, look, that's what you guys have been doing. It's what you continue to do. This is nothing new. The second thing is he gives them an absolutely factual description of Jerusalem there in verse 34. Look, you guys have been doing this forever. For over a thousand years at this point in time, since the time of David, the prophets were being bumped off in Jerusalem, sent to their final breath. And yet this lament, in it Jesus basically says, but I still love you. I still love you. Jesus knew every market stall, every tower, every tree. He knew the history all the way back to the first priest, Melchizedek. He knew the days of the Herods. He knew what would follow. He knew that the insane one, Antiochus Epiphanes, would come. He knew that Judas Maccabees would rise up. He knew that Titus would come and, and sack Jerusalem. And so he's saying, look, I already know what's going to happen. And I'm not concerned. But I am concerned for you. Are you going to come to me? And in that light, he gives them this fearful destruction that's coming of Jerusalem. Now, it wouldn't happen for 38 years. But Jesus says to them, Behold, your house is left desolate. See, your house is left desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes, and you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to something. When Jesus said that, the city had not yet been destroyed. And it was not destroyed before he died. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the destruction rubble laying at the base of Herod's wall. It's still there. 
So when the Roman general Flavius Titus comes and destroys the city of Jerusalem, sacks it and burns it, destroys all of the people in the city, leaves very few people alive, nearly wiping out the Jewish people. And in Jerusalem, you could say he did. Jesus predicts that. He said, your house, and he's speaking of the temple. He's saying, your house is going to be left desolate to you. And you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's not referring to the triumphal entry because the house isn't desolate yet. The house would become desolate 38 years later. And so the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a later blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I believe it's referring directly to Daniel's 70th week, the final week, the tribulation that's still to come. As God takes first the church home and then the tribulation unfolds and the Lord then comes again and fights the battle of Armageddon and finally this holy apostrophe that's put there in AD 3233, that last week unfolds. Jesus is saying, one day you're actually going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and means it. Because what we're going to see when they say it, when he comes into Jerusalem, they absolutely did not mean it. You know why we know that? Because the next few days, he's going to, they're all going to stand there going, we don't want that man to rule over us. They were announcing him king, but they didn't want that kind of king. They wanted a ruler that was going to overthrow Rome. And because Jesus didn't overthrow Rome, that shout of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is still future. But as surely as Jesus came the first time, so assuredly is he coming to snatch us away so that we meet him in the air. Amen? Now I don't know, you know, you can sit around and we can debate history if you want. But I know when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 that it has not ever since then had a temple. There is no temple on the Temple Mount right now. There's now five mosques. There used to be four. They built another one underground, actually underneath the pavement of the upper level of the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock is a mosque, the Haram al-Sharif, the Dome of the Chain. You look at the Temple Mount today and it is primarily a Muslim place of worship. The walls around the city of Jerusalem are Ottoman walls from the Muslim Empire. And interestingly enough, on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem, there are two gates. There are a corresponding matching set of gates on the wall that's directly below the enclosure that holds the Dome of the Rock. Oddly enough, they are also on the eastern side. And they've been walled up. Bricked over. Filled in. I believe the day is coming 
that final week that still remains, that Jesus is referring to, I, I believe that's why we are all still here, is to tell the rest of the world about Jesus. Because he's coming again. Amen? I'm going to share just a couple of things with you as we close. And I want you to understand this from my perspective. Could it be that the Lord is actually setting the church up right now for that final push? Those final days in the age of grace? Could that be what this is about? I think it could very well be. I'm not saying I received a personal revelation from the Lord and I'm not setting a date. But I'm telling you, we've never been closer to these things being a reality. You see, because Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. It's an interesting phrase because it doesn't mean those things that are up in the sky right now. It means innumerable people and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. What did Jesus say? I would gather you as a mother hen gathers her chip, chicks, but you would not come. The temple is destroyed. The rubble lies at the base of the wall to this day. And yet Jesus said he's actually coming again. And the Jewish people primarily will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Someday. Even they who pierced him. Who is that? That would be the Jewish people in practicality. The truth of the matter is you pierced him and so did I. I was responsible for Jesus' death because of my sin. My sin put him on the cross. My sin was why he was beaten. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement for my peace was placed upon him. But in a practical sense, it was Caiaphas and Annas. It was the rulers of the synagogue that said, crucify him. And so in that sense, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. What does Jesus say next in verse 8? For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, the one who was and is and the one who is to come the Almighty. The Almighty is still coming again, church. Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming back to be crucified. He's coming back to rule and reign in righteousness. The whole world's going to see him. That's why Zechariah said, I'll pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. You can't have the spirit of grace without the grace of God. It's an impossibility. Those two things are synonymous. The spirit of grace is found through the grace of God being applied to your life. They'll look on me whom they pierce. The very same words that Jesus speaks through John in Revelation chapter 1. Zechariah writes that. Ezekiel says much the same thing, but he adds something to it. And he says this. Afterward, in Ezekiel 43, 
He brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east, the golden gate. And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel came by the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of a vision which I saw. And the Spirit lifted me up, verse 5 of Ezekiel 43, and brought me into the inner court. You know, in order for that to happen, there needs to be an inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a temple, and there's no temple. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. It hasn't been rebuilt, but oddly enough, the Temple Mount Faithful drive around the cornerstone of the new temple pretty much every year a couple of times because they're ready to build it at any moment in time. And then I heard him speaking from the temple while a man stood beside me, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Jesus is coming again. There is a week that's missing from mankind's history. And the blindness that Paul writes about in Romans 11 still exists. A blindness in part for the Jewish people concerning Christ. That's why our love for them as a church is so deep. Because Jesus cried out and said, You're going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord one day. And that day, I believe, is coming, and it may be very soon. I believe the splendor of the sky splitting is going to happen. I believe Zechariah 12 will come to pass. I believe Ezekiel 43 will be fulfilled, and Jesus won't be bothered by the bricks that are inside of the eastern gate. That's why Jesus said, go tell that sly fox, I don't care. This is the purpose I came for. I'm, you can't stop me from going to Jerusalem. It doesn't bother me in the slightest that I'm going to give my life, though I wish it could happen some other way because he actually asked the Father if there's some other way. That would be nice. That would be good. But there wasn't. And there isn't. And there never will be. There's one king. His name is Jesus. There's one savior. His name is Jesus. There's one Lord, his name is Jesus. And so Jesus simply says to him, look, time's running out. The clock is ticking. The last days began when Jesus said it is finished. People sometimes think the last days as in the last day. But the last days, that period of time, is the age of grace. And we're still walking in it. And so I say to you, are you ready to meet him? Because he is coming again. For the church, he's coming for us. Can't wait. I've always wanted to be able to fly without a plane. Can't wait. I, I want to take off and see Jesus so bad. Just so you know, there's no masks in heaven. You know why I know that? Because your Bible says you'll see him face to face. Amen? Let's rest in that, church. Let's trust in him, church. 
And if you don't know him, after service, we've set up some prayer tents. So if you need prayer, we have some pastors that will be available uh, to my right. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus to go to heaven. You don't need to know a political party. You need to know Jesus to go to heaven. You don't need to know who's going to win an election. You need to know Jesus to go to heaven. You don't need to know all the answers to everything that life holds. You need to know Jesus to go to heaven. Personally, as both your Savior and your Lord, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved, save the name of Jesus. So if you need to know him, come and say, hey, I need to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Pastors will just lead you in that, that prayer to invite Christ into your life. For the rest of us, Go out of this place with joy. Be led forth with peace. This is still the king's kingdom. And he actually does have a plan for your life, for our lives, for the church, for this world. And it's still a Jeremiah 29, 11 promise that our future is still good and it is hopeful. He has a plan. Don't miss it. Don't miss it, because the whole world's one day going to look up and go, that's Jesus. I want to do that before he comes. I want to be waiting expectantly to see him burst through the clouds and go, that's Jesus. So let's get busy about our Father's business. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Alex will come lead us in a chorus. Father, we look forward to that day with anticipation. We know that on the great timeline that you laid out in your word, that we're out towards the end. We believe that, Lord, that Jesus, you are coming again on the clouds, with the clouds, with great glory. The Apostle Paul so believed that, that he said that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we who believe declare that today. Jesus, you are our Lord. You're a master. You're the ruler. For those that don't know you, I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you'd send the good news of the gospel into the hearts of those who need to know Christ the Son today. The only name whereby men may be saved, must be saved, can be saved. And so, Lord, convince of sin and righteousness and of salvation to those who need that. Send encouragement to those who are hurting and broken. Father, we thank you for your love. We bless you for your care for us. Watch over us, Lord. Get us home. We want to finish well. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.